Thanks for listening to the weekend message from Abundant Life Church. Most weeks on the podcast, you'll hear teaching from our lead pastor, Jeremy Jernigan. We have campuses in Oregon and Washington and are committed to giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Find out more about Abundant Life Church at alcpnw.com. Well, I'd like to share a quote with us today to begin uh, getting us ready for, for today's topic. And, and if you came here today and you're new and you're not quite sure what you got into and you're thinking, hey, I, I think church is a little bit stuffy and uh, this should put you at ease of, of what kind of a church we are. Uh, but this quote I want to share with us has a lot of vivid imagery and I think sets the tone for what we're going to talk about today. This comes from an author uh, named Stephen James. He says, a hernia will change your life. Swallowing two pounds of X-Lax will change your life. (laughs) Getting bitten by a rabid dog will change your life. So will going bankrupt, joining a cult, or getting a tapeworm. All of these things are very life-changing. Change is not always a good thing. And he says this, what I need isn't change from one thing to another, but transformation from who I am into who I was meant to become. I love that because so often we, we search after the change, we search after the, the experience, the moment, but as he cleverly illustrates, uh, that, that's not too hard to find. But transformation, experiencing life differently, uh, that takes a little bit more work and, and that is found in the person of Jesus as we'll see today. Well, I wanna welcome you to Abundant Life Church, to those in the room with me, uh, to those of you who are watching or listening online, however you are connected with us, we are so glad that you are a part of this experience together with us. And, uh, and, and if you uh, are new with us, my name is Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're so grateful that you are connected here, that you are a part of this with us. We're going through a series right now through the Gospel of John. And so if you have a journal, I want to encourage you to get that out. We're in week two now of these journals. So you can see week two there, you'll see the date. Uh, and then there's a spot to write down the title. This is so if you ever want to go back online and, and maybe look this back up or, or uh, reference back to your notes. Today's title is called From Death into life. And so if you want to write that down, uh, you can keep track of which message uh, we were in. And and then in our Bibles today, uh, we are going to be in John chapter 5. And so again, uh, we're just working our way through the gospel of John, been taking our time in this, and uh, I have enjoyed this. A number of you have expressed that you're enjoying it. If you're not, just don't let me know, okay? And so we'll keep that streak going. I love it. Uh, We're in John 5, and we're looking at essentially part two of a story we looked at last week. Now, if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you, go online, watch it, or listen to it. It'll help give a lot of context for what we're going to talk about today. But don't worry, if you weren't here last week, I'm going to give you a Reader's Digest version of what we talked about so that you can understand what today's patches is dealing with. Now, last week, Jesus met this man who was uh, sick for 38 years. We don't know exactly what he had, but essentially was paralyzed in some way, was laying on a mat for 38 years, and Jesus, in a moment miraculously heals this guy. And, and you would think everybody would celebrate, this would be amazing news, but the problem was Jesus did it on the Sabbath. When if you're a Jew, uh, you don't work on the Sabbath, you don't do anything, and, and Jesus told this man after he was well to get up, carry your mat, uh, and you know, stand up and carry your mat. And so the carrying the mat part was really the problem because you're not allowed to do that, that's considered work. And so these religious leaders say to this man, how dare you? work on the Sabbath by carrying your mat. And the guy's like, look, Jesus told me to do it. That was his argument. Like, I, I just did what I was told. So then they go to Jesus. And they're like, how dare you 
tell this guy that he's supposed to carry his mat? How dare you heal someone on the Sabbath? And so to this, uh, really today's passage is Jesus defending himself uh, from these accusations. How dare you do this? How dare you heal someone on a day that we're supposed to rest? And so if you're with me in John chapter 5, we're going to begin reading in verse 16. And we're going to see uh, where some of this animosity, where some of this tension is based out of. So, so the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. Now again, he just healed a man who had been sick for 38 years. And the context here is now they're harassing him for breaking Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied, my father is always working and so am I. So the Jewish leaders tried all the harder to find a way to kill him. For he not only broke the Sabbath, he called God his father, thereby making himself equal with God. Now you begin to realize some of the the hatred, the animosity uh, that is ultimately going to lead to the murder of Jesus. Why are they so bothered? It's because of, of things that Jesus did and because of the things that Jesus said. Now, I can't help but read this, and I think about part of my childhood, uh, and maybe you were like me. I don't know if you're like me, but when I was a kid, and, and my parents would, would leave for an evening, and they would say, hey, tonight we're going out. You're going to have a babysitter. I would always get a little bit excited because I knew that the babysitter had, you know, some of my parents' authority, but they didn't have all of it. And most of the time, I could talk babysitters into doing things that my parents would never allow. Anyone else with me? Some of you know exactly, you had a childhood like mine, you're like, oh, babysitter time, okay, I'm on to this, you know? And I loved it because, uh, again, they were like fill-in parents for the moment, but they weren't really my parents, they didn't really have the authority. And I just remember as a kid thinking, this is an opportunity. Same thing happens when a kid gets a substitute teacher, right? You're, you're fully a teacher, but you're not my regular teacher. Therefore, I don't have to give you the same level of authority. And some of you, maybe you've been a substitute teacher and you know that pain, or you've been a babysitter and you know that pain. But as a kid, you, you see an opportunity there. Now, I'm an adult and I have five kids of my own. And now I see this from the other point of view, uh, you know, and I go, wow, this is, this is a challenge. And, and our five kids love to try to convince babysitters of all sorts of things uh, that they're allowed to do, that they're not allowed to do. And so uh, I literally cannot anticipate every possible thing that our kids are going to say to a babysitter. So most of the time I'm guessing like, hey, here's some things they might say, or here's, you know, make sure you stick to this. And, and then every now and then we'll, we'll come home and a babysitter will tell us something that one of our kids convinced them about. And it's like, well, they got us again. Not too long ago, we had a babysitter and uh, I think it was a new babysitter. And she said, hey, yeah, uh, the four-year-old uh, told me that you guys let him sleep with his lights on said, no, no, that's, that's not a thing. We don't, we don't let him sleep with his lights on. And so uh, we're like, okay, that's a problem. I'm like, I'll, I'll go check on him. So this is hours after his bedtime. I go up there. He is merrily playing with toys in his room, has no, no indication that he's going to bed anytime soon because his full lights are on and he's having a great time. And I'm thinking, well done, little man. You, you got it. You, you worked the system well. You figured it out. You know, uh, point for you on this time. But next time, uh, we're going to figure this out. And there's something happening here with this as well, that Jesus is acting like God, but they're treating him like he's the babysitter. He's the substitute teacher. You're not really God. 
You're, you're not really the authority of God. You're, you're just like a fill-in kind of a person. And so they have to acknowledge Jesus is doing some crazy things. He's healing people. He's changing things. There's miraculous things happening. But, but they're not comfortable assuming that he has all the authority that the Father has. And, and, and so this whole conversation breaks out about the Sabbath. Now, I want you to notice Jesus' argument because it's an intriguing argument. In defense as to how dare you heal on the Sabbath, Jesus says essentially that God the Father no longer practices Sabbath. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. We get the idea of Sabbath from the Old Testament. It starts in the creation account where six days God works, on the seventh he rests. That creates this model. And maybe you thought that that's how God's week looks every week, that on the seventh day God just says, hey, I'm out. Hope everything goes well. Don't do anything crazy. I'll be back, you know, tomorrow. But what Jesus argues is that God is always working. My father is always at work which is an intriguing argument to consider. But then what he's saying is, therefore, since I am also God, I can work on the Sabbath. And now you can begin to see how this, this claim is so offensive to them to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. You think you're allowed to work because you're God? Because you, you, you are above this? And that is indeed how Jesus views himself and how he views Sabbath. Now, the bigger issue here is not just Sabbath. It's that Jesus is using the Sabbath to illustrate the reality that he thinks he's God. And he's just using the Sabbath to point that out yet again. And they are so mad. They are reacting to how dare you claim to be God? How dare you act like God? You have no right to do that. Now, here's what's interesting. If you think about kids, if a kid uh, imitates something that their parents do, most of us find it cute. Even if a kid just imitates something an adult does, uh, regardless of how good the imitation is, we look at that and we go, wow, that is so sweet. And I can improve this to you. I wanna show you a video of a little toddler imitating something that he sees on the TV and, and watch how you just naturally think this is cute. Check this out. Yeah. Just try watching that without a smile on your face, right? There's just something we think is cute about someone little, a little kid imitating something of an adult. But here's what's interesting. Notice that there was no part of you, I suspect, while you're watching that video going, you know, his, uh, his curling form is a little sloppy. Like, he's, he should get deeper in that squat. You know, I don't know what he's doing. Like, th that's not the reaction you have. You don't start critiquing it. You start going, wow, it's amazing how close he is, right? It's amazing how close he's able to get. That's where your brain goes. But here's what I want you to notice. The opposite is happening when they watch Jesus. So they're watching Jesus act like God in front of them, doing what God does, and rather than going, wow, We've never seen anyone do this before. They're saying, how dare you claim to do this? How dare you act like this? And, and so you can understand the reaction they're having. But Jesus, as we're gonna see in just a moment, his argument is essentially what this little kid could argue. Like, look, I'm just doing what I've seen the father doing. I, I'm just imitating what God the father does because like, we're in sync together. So what God the father does, you can see me doing as well. Now, I wanna show you uh, Jesus' argument in its entirety, um, but here's what we're gonna do. And, and if you're a regular with us, uh, you're gonna notice this is unusual. I'm gonna read a whole chunk of verses. I don't normally read this much back to back, okay? If you're new with us, 
You have to believe me. I don't normally do this. Uh, This is not how how it works. But I want to read verses 19 through 30. Yeah, some of you are like, whoa, like that's a lot. I know it's going to be a lot. Uh, So here's the advantage. If you brought your Bible, it's going to be way easier to follow along if you can read it in in front of you. If not, you're going to have to listen. You're going to have to just try hard and dial in. But here's why. I I don't want to break this section up. I want to read the whole thing. And here's why. Okay, so I'm going to tell you where we're going to go. I want to make the argument that I think John is using a literary technique in this section. And so I'm going to read the whole section for us. We're going to let it breathe. And then I'm going to show you what I think John is doing with verses 19 through 30. And so we're going to take it as a whole. All right, we ready? Stretch out. All right, here we go. John 5, 19. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth. The son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. In fact, the father will show him how to do even greater works than healing this man. Again, the reference to the story last week. Then you will be truly astonished. For just as the father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the son gives life to anyone he wants. In addition, the father judges no one. Instead, he has given the son absolute authority to judge so that everyone will honor the son just as they honor the father. Anyone who does not honor the son is certainly not honoring the father who sent him. I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. And I assure you that the time is coming, indeed, it's here now, when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, and those who listen will live. The Father has life in himself, and he has granted that same life-giving power to his Son. And he has given him authority to judge everyone because he is the Son of Man. Don't be so surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life, and those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. I can do nothing on my own. I judge as God tells me, and therefore my judgment is just because I carry out the will of the one who sent me, not my own will. We made it. Okay. You're like, well, that's a lot to process. Okay. I'm going to make it easy for you because here's what I want to argue is I think John is using a technique that is very common all throughout scripture. It's common even in classic literature. Uh, it's common even today sometimes. But here's what I suspect. Most of us do not use this, this technique. We are not even aware this technique exists. And so it seems strange to us. But just because you may not use it or it may seem foreign to you does not mean that the writers of scripture are not using uh, certain techniques. So here's what I think John is using. is that He's using something called a chiasm or a chiastic structure. So I know these are not words you probably use, so go ahead and write those down if you want to, uh, to Google this later and you can see more of what I'm talking about. Um, or if you just want to sound really smart at your next party, uh, start talking about, hey, you've been reading many chiasms lately? And people will be like, wow, 
they're so smart, right? Um, so you can throw that in. So chiasm or a chiastic structure. Now, again, here's what I, I submit to you. You find this all throughout Scripture, and you can just Google this. Uh, you can spend hours Googling chiasms in the Bible, and you're going to find all sorts of fun th- stuff. But let me illustrate uh, what a chiasm is as a literary technique. It's a way to make an argument, okay? So here's the structure. It, it starts here, and then it kind of reverses its way back. So A is, is an argument. So first argument, second argument, third argument, fourth argument. And this could be as long or as short as possible. But then what happens is once it gets to the center, it restates arguments in reverse. So then it restates D, uh, and then it restates C, then it restates B, then it restates A. So A, the two points, A1 and A2, they would correspond together. Now, it doesn't mean they're exactly the same wording. It means that the logic or the point of these would be mirrored points, okay? So parallel point there, parallel point there, parallel point there. Now, you're going, this seems really confusing, kind of like, uh, you know, algebra or something and a little bit more than I'm, I'm used to, but it's a common way of, of making a point, and I can illustrate this for you. Now, to help us understand what I think John's doing, let me go out of John for a moment. I'm gonna take a sentence that Jesus said that is written in chiastic structure, okay? So this might be an easier way to see this. Uh, This is Matthew chapter six, verse 24. Jesus says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now this is written in a chiastic. So what you'll notice is, so take A and A1. No one can serve two masters. You cannot serve God and money. You see how those are parallel ideas, starts with it, ends with it. That is, is usually the clue of, whoa, I think I'm reading a chiasm. When it starts in a tone and then it ends in the same tone, then you can look in between and go, is there something happening here? And you can start to see that these uh, ideas parallel each other. So again, you can find this all throughout scripture. Now, here's what I think is happening in the huge chunk of verses we just read in John. I think verses 19 through 30 are all written in a chiasm. This whole thing that Jesus said, John is, is packaging this for us to understand into a chiasm. Now, this does not mean necessarily that Jesus said it exactly like this. Now, that might mess with you a little bit. But when John is taking the nature of this conversation, he's writing it out for us in a chiasm so that we get uh, the, the bigger idea. So here's what this looks like. Uh, and again, Take a photo of this if you want this. This is probably way more than you can write down. Uh, but here's this whole premise uh, of the passage we just read, summarized with phrases using chiastic structure. So in this, it begins in verse 19, which mirrors verse 30. Uh, verses 20 through 21 mirror verses 28 through 29. So it would sound like this if you summarize it. The son does only what the father does, cannot do without him. Father and son give life to the dead. The father gave all judgment to the son. It says, truly, truly, they will hear and believe. Truly, truly, they will hear and live. The Father made the Son the source of life. All will rise from the dead. The Son judges like the Father and cannot do it without him. Now, you're going, okay, we all just became Bible scholars. I did not sign up to be a Bible scholar. did not come here today to be a Bible scholar. Okay, we're, we're done with the Bible scholar stuff, but let me just illustrate. You might be going, what is the point? Why would anybody write like this? This is confusing. It's making my head hurt. Here's here's how you understand a chiasm. Ready? The point is the point. You with me? The point is the point. The point of the chiasm is the point of the chiasm. 
So whenever you recognize that someone is writing in a chiasm, you go to the point of it, the center of it, and you go, what is happening at the center? Because this is a setup for it, and this is a conclusion for it, but the point is the center. Now, if this is an accurate reading of John, and you can disagree, like I say all the time, you're free to disagree. Uh, If this is an accurate reading of John, then verses 24 and 25 are the point. This is what the chiasm is directing us toward. So let's go back and go, all right, if this is what John is doing, let's read verses 24 and 25 as the point of Jesus's whole argument. It sounds like this. I tell you the truth. Those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. And I assure you, That the time is coming, indeed it's here now, when the dead will hear my voice, the voice of the Son of God, and those who listen will live. Here's what's great about this reading of of this passage. If you look at today's verses uh, that we've already read, you see both of John's themes throughout the book in these passage, in this passage, okay? Now, if you've been with us, you've heard me say this before, but I, I would say there's two themes that John is developing throughout the whole gospel. Number one is that Jesus is God, okay? So John is making the point, Jesus is not just a great teacher, he's not just a great guy, he is God. And you have that at the beginning of this passage where they're literally saying, how dare you heal on the Sabbath? And Jesus is like, well, just doing what God the Father does. I can work because I am God. So you have the first theme. The whole setup to this argument is that Jesus is claiming to be God and acting like God. That's theme number one. Theme number two that John develops all throughout the gospel is believe that Jesus is God. Why? So that we would find our life in him, which is what Jesus says here, that if you want life, you're going to have to find it in me. And so in the context of them looking at him going, how dare you claim to be God? If, if this chiasm is the clue to understand this, then Jesus' best argument in response is, yeah, well, if you come to me, you're gonna find life, and that's my defense as to why I can act like God, because I can provide you with life. There's an intriguing way for Jesus to, to defend why he's able to heal the man that he healed. Now, there's some phrases here that if you've grown up in the church or you've been around some of this, uh, we, we start to kick into like churchy stuff, like, oh, yep, got it. I know what that means. And we probably don't actually read it the way that John is intending it. Let me give you the way a couple scholars would help us uh, analyze this. One theologian named Marianne May Thompson says this. John does not write that knowing God leads to eternal life as if it were the reward for faith, but that knowing God to be in communion with God is life because God is the source of all life. This is a brilliant distinction that she's making here. She's saying that most of us, and I would say this is most Christians, right? We talk about, yeah, someday, if you're a Christian, someday when you die, you will get eternal life. Won't that day be great? What about now? I don't know, but someday, You're gonna get eternal life. And what she's saying is, that's not the context of eternal life, especially not in passages like this. The context is eternal life found in knowing God, in knowing the person of Jesus. Let me give my own paraphrase to this. I would say like this. If you think eternal life only happens when you die, you are missing one of the greatest parts of following Jesus. 
And here's the sad irony. Probably most Christians around the world, or certainly in America, mainly talk about eternal life as some future thing that one day we will get to experience. And we talk about it like this, and I'm not negating that. That's true. But what I'm saying is that negates the whole eternal life right now. And so if we think, oh, someday, because I'm a Christian, I will get to experience eternal life, you are missing one of the greatest reasons why you should follow Jesus is that you can experience eternal life right now in the person of Jesus by knowing who Jesus is. Now, yeah, that's worth a whew, Absolutely. All right, I want you to notice again, if you go back to verses 24 and 25, notice the phrases that Jesus uses and begin to think, is he only talking about someday when we die, that someday we'll get it? He says, they will never be condemned. Never. Like not now, not in the future. Like you live in this place of no condemnation. That sounds like good news. They have already passed from death into life. Well, no, no, not already, Jesus. Like, someday we're gonna do that. Jesus is like, they have already passed from death into life. That when you know Jesus, when you experience Jesus, you have already passed from death into life. And he says, those who listen will live. What, 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 when do I listen? You listen right now. You start tuning in to go, Jesus, what are you up to? What are you doing you see, Jesus wants to speak life into the deadness around you right now. He's not going to wait until you are fully dead. He wants to look at the dead areas of your life today and say, hey, I've got some eternal life for you. I've got something to, to give you as you know me, as you experience me. I don't know what you would look at in your life today and go, I got, I've got some deadness. But I think all of us know what it's like to have dead areas of your life. Maybe for you, it's your marriage. You're like, this thing, it's beyond hope. I, I, it can't be saved. It's some deadness in your life. Maybe it's a dream of yours that, that you, you just gave up on. And that dream is dead. That thing's not coming back. Maybe it's your career and, and you used to have aspirations. You used to think something was possible and you gave up on that. Maybe it's some broken relationship in your life. And you're like, that, that's beyond hope. That is dead. So there's deadness all around us. And if we think, oh, eternal life, that'll be great someday, we will miss the experience of knowing Jesus in real time and knowing who Jesus is and what Jesus wants to bring to you and I. Another uh, scholar, Michael Gorman, says it like this. Many people naturally interpret the phrase eternal life as a reference to a future, heavenly, everlasting life. But something more is going on. Life in John, in the Gospel of John, means participation in the life and love of God. So here, Michael's carrying on Marianne's theme that she pointed out, that it's not just some future thing. And again, take note when multiple Bible scholars are going, hey, we're missing the point of what the text is saying. It's not some future day only. It's for right now. But he adds a word that I think is helpful. He says it means participation with Jesus. Marianne uses the phrase knowing Jesus, right? He talks about participation with Jesus. That's how we get to do this. And so let me ask you, if you're following Jesus today, how much are you participating in what Jesus is doing? How much are you participating in the life of Jesus? You might be going, well, how do I do that? 
How would I even know if I'm doing that? Well, I think you had to look to the example and go, well, what did the early church do? What did the, the first people who started following Jesus, how, how did they demonstrate what it looked like to participate in life with Jesus? And I, I would think back to uh, the Apostle Paul. He was one of the early leaders in the church, and he was one of the guys that figured out a lot of this stuff. Okay, how do we now follow Jesus after the death and the resurrection, the ascension into heaven? Uh, how do we figure this out now? Paul gives us an intriguing paradigm. In 2 Corinthians 4, 11, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, yes, we live under constant danger of death because we serve Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be evident in our dying bodies. So we live in the face of death, but this has resulted in eternal life for you. You're going, okay, this is, this is an interesting argument. He's talking about life in context of death, but not like some future one-time death and this idea of constantly dying. That as we constantly die, we give life to you and we experience life for ourselves. And what we can understand is for someone to receive something, someone else has to give something. For someone to be fed, right, someone else had to provide the food. For, for someone to be inspired, which means life was breathed into them, someone else had to have life breathed out of them. If someone somewhere benefits, then someone somewhere paid a price for that to happen. Which is why our mission statement as a church is that we are giving ourselves to make the gospel good news for others. Because that's the model we find in scripture of how the early church began to experience and participate in the life of Jesus. Not some future, hey, this will all be made right when we all die. Let's just wait till that day, you know, God willing, right? No, right now. Let's right now begin to participate in the life of Christ as we know him, as we give ourselves for this so that other people can experience life. So I go back to our question how much are we participating in the life of Jesus? Here's a couple ways to, to think about this as you try to think about your own answer. If you were to suddenly move, uh, move companies and you no longer worked wherever you work, would your coworkers feel a sense of loss because of the way you have tangibly loved and served them? Would there be a sense of like, wow, we are bummed to hear this because of what you added in real time to our experience here? Would your neighbors feel a tangible sense of loss if you were to move to a different neighborhood because of the way you love and serve them? Is there something tangible there that would go, man, we're going to miss you. We're going to lose something because of what you do and the way that you impact us. Think about this. When is the last time you can recall choosing to inconvenience yourself in order to love or serve someone else? Because God prompted you to, right? And it doesn't have to be huge. It can be, hey, this might make me late to my next thing if I go and do this. This might put me in a potentially awkward situation, right, if I say yes to this, but, but I'm going to allow myself to be inconvenienced. This might cost me something financially if I do this, but, but I feel prompting. Maybe it's going to cost you your afternoon nap. I don't know. But, like, when is the last time there was some convenience or inconvenience that you went, you know what, 
I think I can do something for you. I'm, I'm going to sacrifice for you, and it's going to cost me something. You see, we can get these like real big ideas of like following Jesus is about having perfect theology and really good church attendance and you know, telling everybody about my faith. It also means you just love and you serve everybody around you, like all the time. And it means you learn how to participate with the person of God. And here's the most amazing news, and please write this down. Every moment can be an opportunity to participate in life with Jesus. Can I get an amen? Every moment. No, Jeremy, someday when we die, we'll get eternal life. No, no, no. Every moment can be an opportunity to participate in life with Jesus. When we start to open our eyes to the people around us and go, I could serve you. I could give myself for you. I could love you. I could inconvenience myself for your benefit. We are choosing to participate in the life of Jesus. And I believe a community like that would change the world. People who said, I, we're just gonna live this out in real time. We're just gonna wake up in the morning and go, all right, God, give me some moments today. I'm, my eyes are open, I'm ready for it. Show me the moments and I'm gonna figure this out, right? And I'm, I'm gonna say yes. And when you present a moment, when you present an opportunity, you may not know where you will be. You could be in the grocery store checkout line and you're gonna recognize I got a moment right here, right? You're gonna start looking for moments to participate in life with Jesus and you will get to experience eternal life right now. I close with this quote. Jürgen Moltmann says, Christian faith isn't just a conviction, a feeling, and a decision. It invades life so deeply. I love that phrase. It invades life so deeply that we have to talk about dying and being born again, which is what corresponds to the death and resurrection of Christ. See, this is not just like, oh, I'm a Christian because I made a decision. I felt something, and so I guess I believe that. No, it's way deeper than that. It's going to invade your life. That eternal life is gonna to try to break in in every moment as you see an opportunity to participate in life with Jesus. May we be the ones who say yes. Jesus, we say yes. We, we live with our eyes open. We are willing to give ourselves, to make the gospel good news for someone else. And in the process, we get to experience eternal life right now. Let's pray together. Jesus, may we experience this. May we experience transformation from death into life. May we be the ones who aren't just looking for someday when our faith is gonna kick in, but we realize that in knowing you, in participating with you, we get to see eternal life now. May you tune our vision to the uh, seemingly limitless opportunities that we find ourselves in day in and day out to love and sacrifice and serve those around us, to show them what good news looks like because we were willing to model it for them. And may we be the recipients of the eternal life in the process as we participate with what you are doing in the here and now. God, use people like us, use a church like us, transform communities like ours because we are willing to infuse it and allow eternal life to invade all aspects right now. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen.